Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 6. As you may have already seen in your bulletin, today we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 6, and we will end in verse 2 of chapter 7. In his commentary, Dale Ralph Davis talks about the useful science of archaeology. And if you could see his spelling, you'd know that he's not talking about archaeology, which is the study of human history where temples and artifacts are dug out of the ground. No, Davis is talking about archaeology, the study of the Ark of the Covenant, and what it teaches about the God who commanded its construction and its use in the worship of his people. So what have we learned so far? This is going to be your review if you haven't been with us. Well, first we learned that a holy piece of furniture can't save you. The Israelites, as well as Indiana Jones, were wrong to believe that an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. They thought they could bring this lucky charm into battle and that it would save them. They thought they could bring it into battle and they would win every time. But as we saw in chapter 4, that's not the case. Because God allowed his ark to be captured and taken into enemy hands. And so we are taught that there are no lucky charms in the Christian religion. The ark won't save you. The crucifix on your wall won't save you. The cross around your neck won't save you. The beautiful old historic church building won't save you. Who is the only one who saves? Who is the only one you're able to trust in completely? Who is the only one who is able to provide for all your needs, direct your steps, control your enemies? the almighty God of Israel, the one who designed the ark. Well, what else have we learned from archaeology? Well, we've learned that our God can take care of himself. We saw this a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 5. The ark is taken back to a Philistine city, and it's placed in a pagan temple next to an idol of a Philistine god, and what happens? The ark remains unmoved and unharmed while the pagan idol falls to the ground and later has its head and hands cut off. And we learn that unlike paganism, the God of Scripture doesn't need his people to care for him. We learn that unlike the God of paganism, he cares For us. We read about this in Isaiah 46, where he says, You have been carried by me from before your birth. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. You know, the priests of Dagon had to care for their idol all the days of their lives. But the Lord cares for 
his people all the days of their lives. What's the lesson in archaeology this week? I think if we boiled it down, what we would see is that the Lord over the Ark of the Covenant is a holy God. He is a holy God, and as such, he must be treated and revered and worshipped as such. So here's how I'm going to break down this passage. I had a, a, a spark of genius, and I decided to modify the title of an, uh, a famous English novel, a novel that begins with the lines, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now, for those of you who are rusty on your English literature, that's, of course, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And as I was studying this week and reading through the text, I'm like, oh, that would be a great title. I could, I could name this sermon A Tale of Three Cities. That's what we'll see. There are three cities in today's passage. Those cities of Ekron, Beth Shemesh, and Kiriath Jerem. And we will have a spelling test afterwards. Ekron, Beth Shemesh, and Kiriath Jerem. Those are the three cities we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to see what we can glean from them. But first, let's pray together. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your word of how we might be made right with you and our sins might be atoned for. You've spoken to us through your word on how we are to worship you and what you require from us. And so, Father, we do thank you for this treasure that we hold in our hands before us. Would you speak to us through it? Would we be those who, like the old English ministers would say, would we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word that you have given to us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 6 and read to verse 2 of chapter 7. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of God, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts 
after he dealt severely with them. Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, if you were with us a couple weeks back, you'll remember 
that it was not only the Philistine idol Dagon that was destroyed, but also the Philistine people suffered as well. Wherever the ark went, the people suffered. The hand of the Lord was heavy against them, and they're terrified and afflicted with tumors, and some died. And I mentioned last time that one of the views from church history is that these tumors and swellings were caused by bubonic plague. Now, if you know anything about the plague, you know it's spread by fleas on rats and mice. The rodents carry the infected fleas near people. The fleas bite people, and people get really sick. And the fact that we see both tumors and mice ravaging the land is a clue that I think this view holds some water. But wherever the ark went, the plague would follow. And as we saw last time, the Philistines begin to play hot potato with the ark. They'll send it to one city, the people will be afflicted. They'll send it to another city, the people will be afflicted. And they just start passing it off from one city to another until finally it's sent to the city of Ekron. And the residents of Ekron had heard about the ark. And so immediately there's a deathly panic. And the residents cried out. They, they cried out, you've brought the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They're terrified that they're going to be stricken with the same plague that their neighbors had been stricken with. And so they gather their lords together and they say, send the ark back. We don't want it. It's going to kill us. Send it back to its home. And that's where we pick up this week. In the Philistine city of Ekron, a city filled with terrified and sick people who are trying to figure out the proper way to return the ark to Israel. And so in Ekron, they gather their religious leaders and they say, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? And the Philistine priests think about this for a moment and then they say, if you send the ark back, don't send it empty or alone, but by all means return the Lord a guilt offering. Now that sounds like a good start doesn't it? Well, they continue. Here's what you're going to do to cover your guilt. Get some gold, melt it down, and you're going to cast five images of golden tumors and five images of golden mice. Now, I was thinking about this in my office. What would a gold image of a tumor look like? And I thought about the horse apple the fruit from the Osage orange tree. Maybe that's what it, who knows? But it's kind of this gross golden blob. And then, of course, are these little statues of, of mice. That's what you're going to do. Five images of tumors, five images of mice to represent the five Philistine lords. And you're going to need a cart to carry everything. So build a cart. Once it's constructed, put the ark in the back, put your box of golden tumors and mice in the back. And then you're going to need some beasts of burden to pull the cart. Here's an idea. Don't use an ox or a donkey. Instead, use two mother milk cows that have never pulled anything. Why, you ask? 
well, we need to determine if this plague is just coincidence or if it's coming from the hand of Israel's God. These milk cows have never pulled anything. And so if they get this right on the first try, that says something. But here's what we'll say even more. Separate these mothers from their calves. And if they choose to disregard their young and walk in the opposite direction, straight towards Israel, then we will know that this is not just some random plague, but it's because of the ark. These mother cows going against nature, abandoning their calves, and walking toward Israel will be a sign that this is no coincidental outbreak, but it is the judgment of God. That was the plan. And so the golden tumors and mice were made. The cart is built. The milk cows are hitched and separated from their calves. The ark is in the back. The box of tumors and mice is in the back. And what happened? The cows ignored their young, and they pulled the cart straight back toward an Israelite city, the city of Beth Shemesh. They did not turn off course. They did not veer to the right or to the left. They walked straight there. And the Philistine lords followed from a safe distance and breathed a sigh of relief. Now, what should we note here? Well, first, weren't the Philistine priests right to say, don't just send the ark back, but send a guilt offering? Sure. The Philistines had sinned against a holy God. Their wickedness had offended him. And the Lord had demonstrated his anger because of their sin. The priests were right to say, something needs to be offered to cover your guilt. And they were right to say, this offering needs to be costly, not cheap. And so they used gold. But what's the problem? They weren't following the Lord's prescription for dealing with man's guilt. They could have gone to an Israelite priest, and you know what he would have said? He would have cited Leviticus and said, you need to offer a ram without blemish. But they didn't. They got creative And instead of offering a ram without blemish, they offer some gross golden images of tumors and some mice, which the Old Testament names as unclean animals. And here's what's important for us to remember. You and I don't get to decide what we offer to God to be forgiven. In my younger years, I remember that I would sin and then think, well, some, I need to do something to get back right with God. And so I'd think, well, I'll just punish myself. I'll deny myself. I'll discipline myself and, and God will be good with that. That's like me sending him a golden rat. And we can think of a thousand examples. I mean, you might be tempted to think, 
Well, I'll just write a very generous check to the church. And that'll cover my sin. Then God will be good with me. Wrong. That's like sending him a golden tumor. We don't get to be creative and come up with ways to appease God so that he will pardon our sin. When we look in the scriptures, we see that there is only one way that God gives by which our sins are atoned for and we gain peace with him. And what is it? It is the obedience and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, on behalf of sinners. We look to Christ. We appropriate his work. We take hold of it by faith. We claim it as our own. And how costly the blood of Jesus was. Infinitely more valuable than a mountain of pure gold. And by faith we say, it's mine. Freely given. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And oh, we are guilty. All of us, just like the Philistines... And at one point in our lives, or maybe still, we were or are under the wrath of a holy God. And we might not be suffering or dying from plague, but the wrath is there. And the terror and unease that we try to bury deep down inside testifies to it. And there's only one way. One way God gives us in his word by which our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And it's by believing on the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand before the Lord and we say, Christ is my offering. Christ is my peace. Christ has taken upon himself all the holy wrath due me. Nothing in this whole world is of more value than his precious blood spilled on the ground in Jerusalem and on Calvary's hill. And I'm claiming that blood. And I'm trusting in his word that in him I will never be cast out. That's a very important question they ask in verse 4. What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? That's a question that all of Scripture concerns. And what's the answer? The spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And only through Him and Him alone does the heavy hand of a holy God become the loving embrace of our Heavenly Father. But before we move on to our next city, what what happens in Ekron after? I mean, God had answered them. He'd spoken through these two mother cows. What did they do? Did they repent? Did they come to Israel and bow the knee before the, the Lord of the ark? No, they probably just returned home, glad the craziness was over, went back to their normal lives and probably carved a new statue that they could worship and care for. We need to remember that example, that negative example. 
There are times when life gets crazy or hard or incredibly sad. And in those times, our focus on the Lord is sharp. And that's why we should view those times as a blessing because they bring the Lord to the forefront of our minds. But too often, what happens afterwards? Once the problem passes, once things get back to normal, once things quiet down, do we say, glad that's over? And then forget the Lord and go on with life as normal? Do we say like the people Job spoke of who say to God, leave us alone. We don't want to know your ways. It's my prayer we would not follow the example of those in Ekron. Well, that's our first city. The second is the Israelite town of Beth Shemesh. Not only was this an Israelite town, it was a Levite town. There were lots of priests here. You think, oh, perfect place for the ark to return. Even more perfect, this is the town where the family of Kohath lived. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to you, but I'd remind you it was the sons of Kohath. Guess what their specific job was? They were assigned to keep the ark and the other holy things used in the worship of God. They lived here. I mean, I I thought of the example. This is like sending a bag of crawfish to Lafayette, Louisiana. They know what to do with it. You send a bag of crawfish to Burlington, Vermont, they're going to be clueless and grossed out. But if you send a 30-pound bag of mud bugs south of I-10, get ready for a delicious meal because those Cajuns know what they're doing. It's the same here. The ark doesn't go back to a random town. It finds its way to the place where there are not only priests, but there's also this family whose job it was to tend the holy objects used in the worship of God. Well, what happens? The people are out in the field bringing in the harvest. They look up and they see something in the distance, a cart pulled by two cows. And in the back, there's this something beautiful shimmering in the sun. It's the golden chest. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It had returned, and so they began to rejoice. They rejoiced that this holy piece of furniture where God would condescend and dwell with his people. This piece of furniture that would have blood sprinkled on it so that they could be forgiven. It was back. Here is the polar opposite of what we saw at the end of chapter 4. You remember the end of chapter 4, after the ark is taken away, the city is in an uproar of grief and horror. It's a national tragedy. The glory had departed. But now the ark was back. And they were glad. And what did they do? Well, immediately they wanted to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So they break up this cart and take the wood and start a fire and kill the cows and burn them as a sacrifice. And then the Levites, the priests, take the ark and the box of golden tumors and mice and they set both up on on top of this large stone where they would be visible to everyone. 
and their worship continues. That was their response. But what was the Lord's response? We see in verse 19, He, the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. The Lord struck 70 men dead. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Everyone is rejoicing. Everyone is worshiping. For the past seven months, they'd lived in a constant state of fear and uncertainty. But now the ark had returned. And in the midst of their celebration and worship, God strikes down 70 men dead. Why? Because God is holy and they've worshipped him wrongly. First problem is they sacrificed two milk cows. The Levites knew what was required for a burnt offering. It was, it was a bull, a male cow without blemish. But they're in such a hurry. They're so excited. They get careless. They take the easy way and sacrifice these two milk cows rather than going and getting a bull. Second, they did the same thing the Philistines have done. When the Philistines captured the ark, they put it up on display in their temple next to their idol. Well, the people of Beth Shemesh do the same thing. The Levites, who should have known better, took the ark and the box of golden tumors and mice and set them together up on a high rock for all to see. Apparently, they'd forgotten or they chose to disregard that the priests were the only ones who were allowed to even see the ark. You know, when they, I'm sure they, well, they should have known Numbers 4, that when the ark was not out of sight, when the ark was not in the Holy of Holies, when it was on the move, when it was out in the open, it was supposed to be covered with a veil, then a goat skin, and then a blue cloth. Triple covered, out of sight. And these priests and sons of Kohath should have known it. They should have yelled at the people to look away. They should have covered the ark of the Lord. They'd forgotten the warning at the end of Numbers 4. They shall not go in and look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. They'd looked upon and violated the sanctity of the ark. They treated the holiness of God as something casual. And they worshipped in the way that seemed best to them. And the Lord struck down 70 men. Well, what does this teach us? Well, primarily, I believe it teaches us that in our own worship, we must never forget that the God we gather to worship each and every week is a holy God, not the man upstairs. And so we must not be casual or trendy or careless, but worship him as he has commanded in Scripture. You know, it's my job as your pastor, and it's the job of your elders to be very particular and guard what happens in our time of worship. 
You know, there's some crazy things that happen in worship services. I'm sure you all have your stories. I've got family who told me that one pastor didn't believe his congregation was excited enough on Easter morning. And so he had the congregation do the wave. We're going to start over here and do this. Get everyone excited for the resurrection. I read of a church that opened its worship with the theme song from Cheers. I've heard about pet blessings in worship and clowns doing Bible skits in worship. It's kind of easy to laugh at those, but there are other things that we might view as less crazy, but things that you won't find in Scripture. Things like passing out roses to all the mothers on Mother's Day or the congregation waving American flags as the choir sings My Country Tis of Thee on July 4th. Again, lots of examples. But you know, just as we don't have the creative freedom to offer God what we want in order to be forgiven, we don't have the freedom to worship Him however we want. He is a holy God. And he has told us in his word how we are to worship him. One commentator noted, he said, quote, What seems natural to us is sometimes sacrilege to God. End quote. You know, the people of Beth Shemesh did what seemed natural to them. But it was sacrilege to God. You can, you can visit a church in the south during the fall... And you know it seems totally natural to the congregation? The pastor spending the first five minutes of corporate worship commenting on the football games from the previous day. Now, I will talk to you about football before or after worship. But unless it's a perfect illustration for the sermon, I will not be talking about the scores from the previous day. What seems natural to us is sometimes sacrilege to God. I mean, maybe you've come to Trinity and you've wondered why we do the things we do and why we don't do certain things. And the answer is we believe God is holy and we want this to be a sanctified time and we want to worship Him in the way He's prescribed in His Word. And so we have a simple service where we sing and pray and affirm our faith and read the scriptures and preach the scriptures and observe the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and on occasion take vows. We have no desire to try to improve on those things that we know were pleasing to God and practiced in the early church. And we see here in Beth Shemesh how a holy God feels about even his own people being careless with their worship and worshiping him as they see fit. One more thing before we move on to our final city. Look at the question, the people, the two questions that are asked in verse 20. The first one, again, is great, totally appropriate. It's much like the question the Philistines ask in verse 4. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Great question to ask. 
And the answer is the same as with the first. Only those washed in the blood of the Lamb, only those safely hidden in the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at the second question. This one's not great. They say, and to whom shall he go up away from us? They're saying, who's going to take this ark from us? We don't want it around. Somebody come get it. Dale Ralph Davis points to something in the New Testament in Mark 5 that you probably remember. Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man who is living among the tombs and he's crazy strong and he's always screaming and hurting himself and he comes running up to Jesus. And Jesus asks the demon, what is your name? And he responds, legion. And Jesus casts the demons out of the man and into a herd of pigs and the pigs rush down the hill into the sea and they're drowned. The people of the city hear about this and they come out to see Jesus. And do you remember what they did? They begged him to leave. They begged him to depart from their region. Everyone except the formerly demon-possessed man asked for the one who was greater than the ark to leave. You see, in both instances... They were not comfortable with this level of holiness and power and danger. And so they asked for someone else to take the ark away from them. You know, thinking through this, I was reminded of the question that the children asked Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver is speaking about the great lion, Aslan. And the children say, a lion? Is he dangerous? And you know how Mr. Beaver responds. He says, of course he's dangerous. But he's good. We need a healthy respect and reverence for this holy God. And at the same time, we should desire to be near him. For him not to leave or depart from us. And we see this in our third and final city, Kiriath Jerem. God's people are now the ones playing hot potato with the ark. And so they send messengers to Kiriath Jerem. They say, The ark is back. Come and get it. Take it home. We don't want it. And that's what happens. The men of Kiriath Jerem come, they get the ark, they bring it to the house of a man named Abinadab. And Abinadab's son is consecrated, he's set apart, and he takes charge of the ark. And the ark will stay in this town, in this house, for the next 20 years. These people in Kiriath-Jerim have the honor to keep the ark of the covenant for 20 years until a king named David would come and bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Now, who were these people? This is important to know. Were these Levites? Were these some super special priests? No, they were Gibeonites. 
These are the same people that tricked Joshua many years before. These are the people that didn't want to be killed in the invasion of Canaan, so they lied and came to Joshua and said, oh, we live a very, very long ways away, and we have journeyed so far, and we're starving, and our clothes are so tattered. We want to make peace with you. And so Joshua makes a covenant with them. Now they're protected. And later Joshua finds out he's been hoodwinked, but the covenant is observed. And the Gibeonites were not killed. Instead, you remember the job they got? They were assigned to be woodcutters and water bearers for the tabernacle. These are the people who sourced and supplied all the wood used for the fires in the tabernacle and collected and delivered all the water used for the ceremonial washing. And now this is unbelievable. It's not the priests. It's not the sons of Kohath who are in charge of the ark. It's these non-Israelite woodcutters and water bearers. You know, in the previous city, we saw that God would bring judgment on his people if they disregarded his word and violated his holiness. But here in this final city, we see that he will honor those and bless those and dwell amongst outsiders who respond in faith and treasure his word and hallow his name. To go back to C.S.'s C.S. Lewis's allegory from Narnia, these woodcutters said, we want to be near the lion. Yes, he's dangerous, but he's good. And we want to dwell with him, and we want to love him, and we want to serve him. May our hearts have a similar desire. May we tremble at and revere the unspeakable holiness and power of our God and simultaneously desire to be near Him and to dwell with Him and love Him and serve Him. And like the psalmist, say, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Let's pray together. Father God, I confess that this is not a natural inclination within me. But it's something I pray that you would give both to me and to your people. Would you give to us a holy fear of your name and reverence in our worship for you? Would we have a clearer picture of the God that we approach and worship? Not the old man upstairs, but the God whose train Isaiah was shown filling the whole temple. But God, may we not flee in fear or terror. May we leave this place knowing And finding refuge in the fact that we are able to stand before you. Because we are hidden in the Lord Jesus. The one who fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf.
And Lord, may we desire to be near you, to dwell near you all our days, that we might find life and health and goodness and bear fruit and be changed more and more, little by little, day after day, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us. We ask this all in his name. Amen.